back to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Dr. Kent Hughes, pastor of College Church at Wheaton, Illinois, tells the story of a dear friend of his, a physician by the name of Andrew Chong. Dr. Chong, just weeks before he died, um, was rushed to the hospital with a heart blockage, and the surgeon went in and tried to clean out the stent and came out sorrowfully to tell the family that there was too much bleeding, that he was not able to get the stent cleared, and he wanted the family to get together because he was not sure if Dr. Chong would even live during the night. A surgeon himself, Dr. Chong, lived for a few more days after that, but when he awakened from his anesthesia, he was in terrible pain and could not talk, could not speak, and he motioned to his wife, and she finally realized that what he wanted was a pencil. And for several days, he had not been able to write in a straight line. He could not move his hand to be able to write. But he took a piece of paper, and the family was weeping. They were, they were saddened. They were sharing with him their sorrow. And he took the piece of paper, and he wrote for to me to live is Christ to die is gain and beneath it he wrote the subscript hallelujah took him over a minute to write it because he wanted to make sure it was spelled right. He always being the precise surgeon that he was. And then he mustered up the energy to whisper to his family, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Tonight, I want us to think together about Paul's confidence We're going to look beginning at the second half of verse 18 of chapter 1 and work down to verse 26 together. Paul's confidence, his joyful confidence. Let's read this passage together. I'll begin at the end of verse 18 and take it forward from there. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. 
since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see in this very transparent opening of Paul's heart to his friends and brothers and sisters in Philippi. The way in which we also can deal with difficult situations in ours with that wonderful, joyful confidence in your watch care and providence and love for us, your children. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Last week... Last Sunday night, we started this section. This actually is the second half of a long paragraph that starts at verse 12 uh, and, and ends really all the way down at verse 26. Paul had finished the passage last week with talking about those who were preaching the gospel but with the wrong motive. They were preaching the gospel because they wanted to somehow or another gain an advantage over Paul. They wanted to somehow make him look bad. And I alluded to the fact, although we don't know this for sure, uh, that it may very well be because this often happens. When somebody new moves into town and wants to start a church, the first thing we do is we have to wrestle with the temptation to hope that they just really don't do all that well. Because they're not like us. They're not from where we are. So Paul, the Jew, was coming into this wonderful metropolitan Rome, and perhaps some of the leaders of the churches there in Rome decided, you know, serves him right. Here he is in jail under lock and key, but we're going to show him what a real church can do. And so they began to preach, and Paul, rather than being discouraged by that, said, so what? The gospel is being declared. That's all I care is that by whatever reason, whatever means, the gospel is going out, and for that I rejoice. He didn't call them heretics. He didn't call them his enemies. He said, all I care about is that the gospel is being proclaimed, and he says, and I will rejoice in that and then he says picks that up and says not only based on the condition he is in now he also now turns and looks toward the future and in typical good protestant baptist fashion i'm going to give you three ways like that's always three three ways three three ways in which paul has confidence as he looks toward the future in his life. First of all, he has confidence in his vindication. He says in verse 18, uh, where we started, he says, I will rejoice because I know this, which I think is referring to his condition that he's in, under lock and key, on ho- in-house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. This will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm going to do tonight is a little bit different than the way we do sermons sometimes. I, I, I think I'm going to do it this way, unless I get busy going in a different direction. But I think that along the way, I'm going to stop and just plug in some application. Rather than saving the application to the end, I'm going to kind of plug it in as we go along, okay? So that seems a little bit disjointed. Just try to follow with me as we work through this, because I don't want you to get to the end, and then us try to double back, and you go, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm confused, okay? So I'm going to try to plug in some application into our lives as we go through this. Paul says... 
I rejoice because I know that this situation, I don't think he just means his house arrest. I think he means the fact that he's going to have to stand before Caesar. He's going to have to declare the gospel. He's going to have to speak to the leader, really, of the, of the world at that point, the known world at that point for the most part. And I believe that this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting... I'm not a Greek scholar. I do know how to read the Greek New Testament. And, and as I was looking at this passage, it's interesting that the link between the prayers of the Philippians and the help that he would receive from the Holy Spirit is a lot more linked than the way it looks in this sentence. This sentence was like, I'm going to be delivered by two things, your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the way... That it, that, it, that it is in the Greek. In the Greek, a lot depends on where you put the definite article, where you put the word the. If, you put, if he had said, I will be helped through the prayers that you lived and the Holy Spirit, then it would mean it was two separate things. But instead, there's only one the, and the the is before the word prayers. I know that I will be delivered through the prayers and help of the Holy Spirit that you give me. So there's a way in which their prayers for him and the work of the Holy Spirit are intimately and intricately linked to one another. But before we get to that, there's that one thing in this sentence that is hard for us to get our heads wrapped around. I believe that this situation will lead to my deliverance. Well, that word deliverance is the word soteria, which is the word that... Is normally used for salvation. Maybe the translators were a little bit nervous to put salvation there because they were afraid we might confuse what it means. Some people feel like this means that Paul is saying, I think I'm going to be delivered from prison. I believe this will lead to my being delivered from prison and be set free. I don't think that's the case because further down he says very clearly at the end of verse 20, Christ will be highly honored in my body whether by life or by death. He already knows that death is a real possibility. So I don't think he's saying, I am confident that when I go to Caesar, he is going to hear my case and he's going to go, I don't even know why they brought you to me. You're a free man. Be on your way. I don't think that's what he meant at all. Well, you say, well, what did he mean? Well, are you ready? I think he's talking about something related to salvation. I believe that this situation will lead to my final salvation. Or I think the Holman, there's a footnote there that the word can also be vindication. My vindication. Now, does that mean that Paul thought he could lose his salvation? Well, of course he didn't think that. But Paul was willing to talk about something that we often think but don't ever want to talk about. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm going to come down, I'm going to, come down to your level and ask you honestly, and I won't even look at you so you can't, your eyes won't be able to give yourself away. Have you never been through a time in your life where you thought, well, I know I'm doing all the right things, but I'm just not really sure if I'm really a Christian or not. I just really wonder if I'm just faking the whole thing. I've had deacons come to me, not in this church, but my deacons here are probably too, no, never mind, I don't say that. But, but if they've come to me and said, you know, there are times when I just really wonder if I really am a believer or am I just faking it? I mean, I, I want to be, I'd like to be. Mark, do you remember when you were struggling with that a few months ago? You said, I, I know in my head, I'm just not sure. Ms. Barton came to me this morning and said, I'm just not sure I'm ready to be baptized. I know I believe the right things, and, and, and I know that I've accepted Jesus, but I'm just, not, I'm just not positive. And if you have never faced that, you are one of the blessed few. 
Because most of us have at least at times been tempted to say, well, how do I know I'm not just going through the motions but don't really mean it? Do you remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says these infamous words, words that we wished he had never written. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The old King James word was, I remember, a castaway. Someone thrown off as being unfit to enter the kingdom. And he said, now you're scaring us. No, I don't want to scare you. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe that we as Baptists have forgotten something that our grandparents took for granted. There is a marked difference between the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints. Both are true. If we truly have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, accept him as Lord and Savior, we are secure. No one can take us out of our Father's hands. But there's no way that we can know whether others are truly believers until they persevere to the end and prove by their perseverance that they truly are committed to Christ. That's what perseverance in the saints means. Those who endure to the end are the ones who are being saved. Doesn't mean you can be saved and then lose it. It means you can act like you have it, but you don't really. Now, am I trying to do this to cause you to have doubts? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying don't be surprised on those times when your humanness tends to tempt you to think, I hope I really do believe what I say I believe. Because we'll sin, and then we'll kind of get off track, and then we'll feel kind of guilty, and Satan will go, yeah, you see? And you call yourself a Christian? The accuser of the brethren comes along? So Paul says, I believe, this is going to prove, this is going to be my test of perseverance. It's easy for me to go to this place, or this place, or this town, or this city, but when I stand before Caesar, and I, without fear, look him in the eye and share the gospel, that will be my final vindication that will show that I truly am a child of God. And he says, but even though I'm confident in that, I'm not so confident in my courage, and I need you to pray for me. I need your prayers. How do we pray for each other? Well, we pray for a sick father-in-law. We pray for a mother with Parkinson's disease. We pray for a baby that has to be taken by C-section a few days early. We, we pray for traveling mercies when people travel. But do we pray for confidence in our spirits? Do we pray for one another asking God to undertake so that we might have courage to do the things when was the last time that you took out your church directory and just took a name and said i'm going to pray that maxine thaggart i'm just calling you because you're looking right at me so you, you, you see you should never look at me when i'm in the middle of a sentence so you know what i'm just praying that maxine today will have courage in her life and in her spirit to be able to do everything that god has for her to do i pray that she might be victorious that she will sense the presence of the holy spirit with her and that she will be able to do i have for seven years come january prayed that god would call out some men and women who every sunday morning would leave this sanctuary and go across this hallway and get in a room and get on their knees and pray for me while i preach and seven years later, there's still no one who will kneel for me and pray while I preach. 
But let me tell you, I have over 100 people that at 1030 Central Standard Time every day, although some of them are in India, and it's 12, year, 12 hours difference, and it's 1030 at night for them. Some of them in Africa, where it's 8 hours different, and it's 630 in the evening for them. They stop what they're doing, and they put their stuff aside, and for 30 minutes, they have me in their prayers. That's the kind of prayer pulse that I need from you Philippians. I think we have forgotten how powerful prayer can be when it comes to our spiritual lives. We have forgotten how we need to pray for each other to have courage to take a stand. Tomorrow morning, Amanda Badger is going to walk into a brand new job. She will know almost no one there. The field will be like a blank slate. She will... And, I, and we prayed for her in Bible study this morning that she would have courage, that she would be able to recognize people who need to hear the gospel out of her life and from her lips, that she, as she begins to get into her new job, that she would be able to build relationships that would lead people to come to Christ. Some of you have been praying for me. You know that every Monday and Thursday night, and as soon as church gets out, if I can, on Sunday nights, I'm going to rehearsal down at the Capitol Theater. I've built a wonderful relationship with a young man whose name is also Steve. And this past Thursday night, I had a chance to sit down with him during a break and share with him the three circles about what it means to be a Christian. He hadn't, hadn't made a profession yet, but he's working on it. And if there's no other reason why I'm in Guys and Dolls, if it's to lead Steve to Christ, it'll be well worth it. All the memorizing of lines and the silly things and the song I have to sing. My voice is very soothing, by the way, so you might want to come and listen if you're having trouble sleeping. Um, but Paul said, I need your prayers. And I think we need to spend more time saying to one another, I need your prayers. And not just for a blood test or what, I mean, we need it for that too. But that I will be spiritually strong. He also says, the spirit of Christ Jesus. The spirit of Jesus Christ. He, that will, he will give me strength. And this brings me to the second thing I want to say to us. I think sometimes we have forgotten about how the Holy Spirit works. I know I don't think about it as much as I probably should. And if I don't, I'm tempted to think that probably some of the others of us don't as well. We know, but we've forgotten. We've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is like a wind that blows. We have forgotten that the Holy Spirit can come on us surprisingly. We have forgotten that in Acts, over five, five or six times, it talks about how they were filled with God's Spirit. And I think sometimes we forget. We just think, well, I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit was planted in my heart. He guides me. He teaches me. He instructs me. He, 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 he convicts me of sin. And other than that, I just go about my life, and whenever he needs to tell me something, he'll tap me on the shoulder. But we forget that there are those times in our lives when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit becomes and empowers us to do unusual things that we couldn't normally do. Things that we don't think we would be able to do. People that we could talk to we didn't think we'd be able to talk to. And the Holy Spirit comes along and fills us and strengthens us and encourages us and gives us the strength to do the things that, he, that God has called us to do. I don't know that we really understand that about the Holy Spirit. Because yes, as the minute we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, the Spirit is implanted in our hearts. He's imparted to us and He lives with us and we have all the Spirit that we need the moment that we're saved. We don't need a second act of grace later on in life or anything like that. But we have to understand that that thing is still fluid. We can quench the Spirit. We can hurt the Spirit. We can limit the Spirit's ability to work in our lives because of our sin. And then we also can yield our lives to the Spirit and find Him coming into our lives in rich and full and meaningful ways that sometimes we forget. 
Our Christian lives are not flat planes. They're up and they're down and they're here. And when we need the strength, and Paul says, I'm going to need strength when I stand before Caesar. So I need your prayers that then will enable the Holy Spirit to come in and strengthen me to do what I need to be done. Well, Paul wasn't just confident in terms of vindication based on his deliverance, but also, look at, the, look at verse 20. He says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all boldness, I will speak what I need to speak. Right? No, it's not what he says. What is his one goal in life? That Christ will be honored. That's all Paul cared about. Paul didn't care if they laughed at him. He didn't care if they stoned him. He didn't care if they beat him. He didn't care if he had to go through shipwrecks. He didn't care if he got mocked and spit on and thrown out of windows. All he cared is, is Christ being honored. Oh, that we would have that kind of life. Oh, that we would get up tomorrow morning and say, I don't care what I eat for breakfast. I don't care what my car looks like. I don't care what my lawn looks like. I don't care about those. All I care is, is Christ being honored through me today. That's what matters. Paul said, I am confident in my final vindication that in my body, Christ will be honored whether it's through my life or through my death. He will receive honor and glory. It's interesting, that word eager expectation is only found one other place in the New Testament, and it's that place in Romans. Remember in Romans where Paul talks about how all, I mentioned it this morning, about how all of creation is eagerly waiting for the redemption or for the revelation, revealing of the children of God so they can be relieved of this. It's, it's, it's an expectation of something that we know is going to happen. And Paul says, I am anxious, I am eagerly expecting to see how Christ will be honored, whether it's through my life or whether it's through my death. I really don't care as long as Christ gets the honor. So the first part of Paul's confidence was his confidence in his final vindication, both through his deliverance and in Christ being honored. But that leads him then to do a little reflection, okay? He's made this statement, and then he makes us aware of a struggle that he's going through in his life. So he says this wonderful, probably the most quoted verse in all of the book of Philippians. For me, verse 21, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, let's just take a minute and parse that out just a little bit. What does it mean to say for me to live is Christ? Well, Part of it means that Christ was in him and he was in Christ and they have spent so much time in communication and communion with one another, walking and talking, Paul asking, Jesus helping by his spirit to give him wisdom and insight and understanding. If you remember back, you can, uh, if you want to turn there, you can, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that wonderful 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Paul says, when you come into Christ, you are a new person. One of my favorite things I tell young couples when we're going through uh, premarital counseling, and I probably told you this before, but I, I try to get them to have the image of being Siamese twins. Did I do that with you and Steve, Christian? We talk about being Siamese twins, and how, you know, if you're a Siamese twin, you can't do anything without the other one. You can't do it. You can't go anywhere. You can't make any decisions unless the other one is a part of it as well. And that's the way it should be with a married couple. They should see themselves as one unit linked together. 
And Paul says the same thing is true. When we come into Christ, we are recreated. We are new creatures. We're not who we were. And so for us now to live literally is Christ. It's everything about him. But not just that. It wasn't just that Christ was in him. It was also that Paul had taken up the cross of Christ's suffering. He had walked the path with Jesus. He was following him in his sufferings. You remember in the book of Galatians, Galatians 2.20, another famous, famous verse that we, that we quote often, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not me, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Paul had this confident ideal. He said, in my life, to live is Christ. Okay, that's good. We got that, Paul. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. We need to attain to that. We need to aspire to that. That our lives, we can say, for me, to live is Christ. I I sleep Christ. I eat Christ. I talk Christ. I think Christ. I act Christ. Every part of my life is committed as much as a sinful person's life can be. And there was no sinner bigger than Paul. He himself said, I am the chief of sinners. And yet, he said, for me to live is Christ. But then he says, and to die is gain. Well, now, wait a minute. Wouldn't it be great just to live for Christ? Why would you want to die, Paul? You... Well, he says, the only thing I haven't had the opportunity yet is to see him face to face. And so for me to die would be the greatest thing that could ever happen to me, to be able to see Jesus face to face. And so out of that ideal, he shares with us this wrestling that he goes through. Look at what he says in verses 22 to 24. He says, now, I mean, just, just listen, as, he, as he's dictating this to, his, to whoever was writing this for him, he says, now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. Now, he didn't mean fruitful to him personally, but, but, but in his mind, fruit was seeing more people come to Christ, more people grow in Christ. He says, if I continue living, I'll be able to be blessed by seeing more fruit out in the churches where I have been working and I don't know which one I should choose. I, I, I'm pressured by both. I, I don't know which one I, to do, I need to do. He says, as for me personally, if it were just up to me, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Now, here's the thing I want you to see about Paul. Not only was his life surrendered to Christ and what Christ wanted and what Christ desired and what Christ commanded but he also had surrendered his life to those whom he was serving he says if it were up to me got no wife got no kids if it were up to me I would just pray that God would let me be convicted and condemned by Rome and be put by uh, and excommunicated and and, and, and executed executed you're not recording this are you Oh, snap. Okay. Would you strike out that all oh, oh, I just did? He said, but you know what? It's not about me. You need me more than I need to go to heaven. And so in verse 25, he has this. I, I sometimes I say, so I have concluded 
Holman says, so since I am persuaded of this. And I think he uses that word because he doesn't want them to think he had some revelation from God. He just says, you know what, I've weighed it all out. If it were up to me, I would just say, Lord, help me be convicted by the Roman government. Help me to be condemned to death so that I can come and be with you. I have served you. I am ready to see you face to face. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, he says later on in this book of Philippians. He says, but then I think about you. And I know that God still has work that needs to be done in your lives. And so I've thought this all out, and, and, and I'm persuaded now. And I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. He was confident of his reunion. Now, here's what's so cool about Paul. Paul wasn't confident that he would be made free because he was right in his case. He wasn't convinced that he would go free because he was a godly man. He didn't think he was going to go free because God loved him in a special way. He believed he was going to go free because God still had work for him to do. And the Philippians needed him, and the Corinthians needed him, and the Ephesians needed him, and the other ones needed him. And most commentators, although I'm not fully convinced, there's no reason not to be, but many commentators believe that this was a first arrest of Paul. Then Paul was arrested again later, and that's when he wrote the book of 2 Timothy, where he says, the time of my departure is at hand. He knew he wasn't going anywhere that time. But at this point, Paul says, you know what? Based on the way I've prayed through this thing and thought about this, I think I'm going to go free from Rome. I think I'll be back among you soon. He says in verse 26, so that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. He said, well, there's all arrogant Paul again. Well, because of me, because of me. No, 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 that's not, that's not what it means. Paul, if you want to word it in the order that the Greek has it, in the Greek it says, so that your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus in me when I come to you again. In other words, God will use me and I will become the channel so that you will focus on Christ and grow in your joy of him. He's not saying, ha, 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 because of me, you're strong. No, 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 that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I believe I'm going to go free. I think I'm going to be back to see you again. I'm going to come and be with you again so that God can use me in order to draw you closer to himself. Last question I want to ask you before we finish. If you were to ask the question of yourself, life or death, which would it be? But more important than which one you would choose is why would you choose the one that you would choose? Some of us are enamored with life. We love our kids. We love our grandchildren. We love our church. We love our house. We love our family. We love our friends. We love our clubs that we belong to. And so we would choose life. Some of us say, you know what? I don't really have a whole lot to live for anymore. I feel like I've done what I need to do. I would just as soon go ahead and die. Now, can I just be sweetly pastoral to you? Do you see how self-centered those two answers are? Every bit of that is about what I would like, what would be good for me. Paul said, if I die, I want to die so that Christ can be honored. And if I live, I'm going to live so he can be honored. And my question for myself, and the reason I'm bringing it so strongly to you is because I've wrestled with this text and said, why do I make the choices that I make? Do I make the choices because of what's good for me, because of what, for what I would like, because of what would bring me happiness, or do I do it because I want to be able to serve God and serve his people? Do y'all do still love me? Or do you love me a little bit? Can I just say something because you love me? I'm 55 years old. My dad retired at 55 and was dead at 60. 
There have been times in the last six months where I thought, you know, retirement might not be so bad. What do you think, Phil? You know, retirement may not be, <laughs> may not be so bad. But guess what? I don't get to make that choice. And I'm not, I don't feel bad because I don't. I love you. And if I'm here until I'm 60 or 65 or 72 or 87, well, no, maybe not 87, but anyway. The point of it is this. I wrestle too with selfish desires of what I want to do. Would I choose to continue working or to retire? Would I continue to stay here with you or go to Life Action and be an evangelist and get to travel and speak in different churches every week? Would I like to stay right here in Waterloo or buy a camper and go and visit my children and go see my grandchildren in Virginia? You see, this is why I believe Paul let us see what he did in this chapter. The reason Paul opened up his heart was so we could learn how do we make those kind of decisions. This is, a very, this is one of the most practical sections in Philippians. Paul shows us, here's how you make your decision. You say, God, Christ, what will honor you the most? What will bring you the most glory? And then I will pray that you will help me to do that thing that will bring you the most glory. So Paul looked at his death, said, well, that would be honoring to Christ. I would be able to be a martyr. I would be able to show people my faith till the end. It would vindicate me and my testimony and my word. But so many more people could be helped if I stayed here. Oh, yeah, not even a question. This is what I need to do, and I believe this is what God's going to do for me because that's what he wants me to do. And so when we have to face decisions, do I take this job or do I stay in the job I have? Well, let's just see. Which one would honor Christ more? Well, it depends on what the job is. Thank you for that raised hand. But it depends on what the job is. And then we say, that's what I'll do because that's what brings Christ the most honor. So Paul teaches us that as we ask people to pray for us as the Holy Spirit guides us, as we are confident in that we are his children and that we're going to honor him and give him the glory. We can wrestle with those things and then step out with confidence saying, I've come to the conclusion that this is the right thing for me to do. And then step out to honor and serve Christ. How do we make the decisions that we're making? How do you make the decisions that you're making? about your life, about what you do tomorrow morning when you wake up, about what you do this fall, about what you do next year as we get close to the end of the year and start thinking about next year. How are we going to live our lives? Paul says, follow my example. Let's pray together.